Good morning. It's hard to believe that uh, we're just a few days away from Christmas Day. They come faster and faster and faster. I think it was just a few weeks ago we had Christmas of 2021 or 2020. Uh, I don't even know what year I'm in, but uh, it is uh, one, of, one of the most exciting times of the year is, is Christmas. Uh, the most exciting time of the year is Easter. You know, we, we celebrate the birth of our Lord, but we should rejoice in the fact that Jesus went to the cross, died, rose again on the third day. That, that's, folks, uh, Christmas and Easter are, 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 are two foundational beliefs of the Christian faith. And with, without those, uh, Paul says, we would be, of all people, most miserable if there were no resurrection of Jesus. But we're not here to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. We're here to talk about the birth of our Lord. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, this is good news. Jesus has come to our earth to seek and to save that which was lost. And Father, in the hustle and bustle of this uh, Christmas season, Father, may we uh, take time out of uh, uh, busy and anxious days and reflect upon the fact that Christ came into the world into this world to save us to bring hope out of despair light out of darkness peace out of calamity and calm out of crisis we thank you in Christ's name amen one of the foundational doctrines of the Bible is that God is a triune being. God is Father, 
God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And to this belief that God is a triune being, we give the name Trinity. That word is not found, by the way, in Scripture anywhere. Uh, The word Trinity, you're you're not going to find it. But the concept is, is laced throughout Scripture, that there is Father, Son, and Spirit. And I want to address that today in this message, because uh, when we think about the birth of Jesus, you know, we, we focus on the person of Christ, and we should, but I also want you to know that uh, the Father and the Spirit were also very active at that time as well. And uh, I don't want to give you the thought that there are three separate gods. There's but one God, but there are three persons in that God. In the Godhead, there's Father, Son, and Spirit. I want you to understand that, but there's only one God. But where did this idea of the triune God begin? Is this something that we find uh, in the... uh, uh, only in the New Testament? Is it something we see only in the birth of Jesus? Actually, the idea of a triune God goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, in the beginning, God. And that word God, by the way, I, don't, I'm, I, I think you should know this. I've said it before, but you know, sometimes reiteration is good for the, for the mind, for the memory. But uh, we, we speak of God in, in Genesis 1. Uh, you know, the, the name God is given many times, but the word that is used in the Hebrew is the word Elohim. And that, that I am ending at the end of Elohim uh, makes it plural, as if we were to say God, and we put an S at the end of God, uh, that makes it God's. And so, oh, there's, but uh, that's what Elohim is. It is a masculine plural noun. Uh, it is, and it is, by the way, gender-specific. Masculine plural noun, Elohim. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image. That is, God is speaking of himself and with himself in the plural number, in a plural context. God is speaking with himself. He's not speaking to the angels or some heavenly host or the, or, the, or the seraphs or cherubs that might be in glory. He is speaking with himself in a plural sense. In Genesis 3.15, you know, you would never think of Genesis 3.15 as being a passage about Jesus, a passage about Christmas. You know, when you do an Advent calendar, there is nothing wrong with putting Genesis 3.15 in there. Genesis 3.15 says this, and I will put, in fact, Drew alluded to this today, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the heel and you shall bruise him on the head. This verse has been called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel 
that verse in Genesis 3.15 is the initial gospel. It is the hope that is given that a redeemer is coming. The good news, the gospel, the good news, a redeemer is coming, a deliverer is coming. The, the, the Messiah of God, the Holy One of God is coming. It is the initial gospel. It is from the seed of the woman. It is from the seed of the woman that the substitutionary lamb of God arrives and destroys the power of the enemy, who is Satan. So then, as we come to our text for today, we find in verse 27 a young virgin girl who is named Mary. And she is betrothed or engaged to. And by the way, when, it, when, you, when you read about being betrothed or engaged to, their engagement or their betrothal is a lot more significant in the Middle East than it is to us here in, in, a, in a Western world. When we say, I'm engaged to, you can break off an engagement and, you know, willy-nilly and guy goes there, girl goes here. You, if you watch any of those movies on TV, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl. You know, they break it off, and then they seem to come back again. You know, every movie is the same. Names and faces change, but the plot never does. You know, that's what you get. And, you know, that's what we do. And, and uh, anymore, you know, people get married. Instead of saying, uh, will you take her? Will you take him as long as you both shall live? We, we change that. Will you take this person as long as you both shall love? You know, when you fall out of love with somebody, just, well, it's a whole lot different back there. 2,000 years ago, to be betrothed to someone is just like being married to them. You just don't call it off. But at this point, this, the story, the account of, of Mary and, and, and her engagement to Joseph and all that, it, it takes a little different twist, something that is out of the ordinary, something that probably you and I have never experienced in our lives. An angel by the name of Gabriel appears to Mary and, and makes this astonishing, it makes an astonishing an announcement to her. If you look at verse 31, he says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call him Jesus. Uh, normally we don't get visits like that. That would be a little out of the ordinary. And Rightfully so, it would be hard to believe. You know, we're such skeptics. We become very cynical and skeptical about things like this. But I also want you to note in what is said in Matthew 1 and verse 18. It records it this way. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the birth of Jesus Christ is a foundational belief in Orthodox evangelical Christianity. To deny that which is plainly taught in the Scripture leads only to one other possible conclusion. And that conclusion would be this that Jesus Christ himself was the offspring of an earthly father and mother. And if this were true, that Jesus had an earthly father and mother, 
then we would run into a most troubling situation. That is, if Jesus had both a physical father and mother, he would, upon conception, not upon his birth, but upon conception, when all the X's and Y's come together, upon conception, he would have inherited at that very moment, at that very moment of conception, a fallen, depraved nature, just as you and I did. Do you know why we die? Do you know why we get old and wrinkly and teeth and hair fall out? It's because we sin. We are conceived with sin. We are not sinners because we sin. Listen, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are conceived as sinners. When you say, oh, what did this little baby do? You know, it's, it, it grieves a parent's heart to see a child die. A child that's maybe just a few hours or a few days or even a few weeks or a year too old, it just grieves your heart. But that child who has really committed no physical sin was conceived as a sinner. And the wages of sin is what? Death. And whether that child dies in the mother's womb, as many have experienced, or whether that child lives to be 120 years old and dies. Death is inevitable because we have all sinned. The wages of sin is death. So if Jesus had an earthly father and mother, he would have been conceived with sin, born with sin, lived in sin, been a sinner. And that could not happen. It destroys the whole foundation of Christianity. So Jesus did not inherit from Adam, as did all the rest of us, a sinful nature. Because the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was involved in the conception of Jesus in Mary. The child Jesus was of holy descent. We have noted by, by Scripture that the Holy Spirit was active in the conception of Jesus. But how do we come to know that Jesus Christ is God? You see, a person can say, well, yes, the Holy Spirit was involved in the birth of Jesus. But how do we know? How do we know? You say, well, I know by faith. But how do we know scripturally that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God? I'm going to give you seven things with seven scriptures that no human being anywhere, anywhere in this world can possibly accomplish even one of these seven things. Jesus fulfills them all. Number one, seven, seven things that absolutely show that Jesus Christ is God. Number one, 
His pre-incarnate state. That is, when I talk about the pre-incarnate, before Jesus was born and became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, before that, in eternity past, he is God, the pre-incarnate God. We read in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 17.5, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ, 17.5 of John, Jesus prays, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. And then listen, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The pre-incarnate state of Christ was that of being God. He was God before he was born. He was God before he was conceived. He was God before the world was created. He was God before there was even a universe. He was God before there was even space. Before there was nothing in all this universe except God himself. Jesus was there. Because he is God. Second. We talked about, first of all, the pre-incarnate Christ. But now, secondly, let's look at his incarnation. We have just a few moments ago read the passage, but it's worth our looking at again in Matthew 1.18. It says, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. His incarnation is that through the Holy Spirit, that which was, listen, that which was invisible, that which was spiritual, that which was holy in, in heaven has now condescended to come to this earth and be a visible, viable human being. None of us can claim that. None of us can be incarnate, God incarnate. None of us. Third, the, se- the third proof that Jesus Christ is God is his sinless perfection. We read in Hebrews 4.15, one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. No one else can make that claim. You know, I hear some of some people in some denominations say that they have lived for months or years without committing sin. I don't know how that is possible. I, I have difficulty going minutes you know, uh, you say, preacher, are you telling me that we all sin? At, folks, if you haven't sinned, I, I, really, I really need to meet with you. Because there's a passage of scripture that absolutely will disqualify you from any spiritual knowledge whatsoever. In John chapter 1 verse 8 says, if we say that we have no sin We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Folks, you and I are just a bunch of sinners. That's what we are. But Jesus was sinless, tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Number four, the fourth proof that Jesus Christ is God, his substitutionary atonement. 
1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for the sins, for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This substitutionary atonement of Christ, this perfect sacrifice that was done by, by the Lamb of God, it, it is a once-for-all sacrifice, once forever. Not once for all that, that all are going to be saved, but once forever. No human being can be a sacrifice to remove sins. And do you know why? Because no other human being is sinless. God demands a perfect, unblemished, unspotted lamb. Now, which one of us human beings would that be? I think it's only Jesus. Number five, and this is a dandy, his bodily, physical resurrection. Matthew 28, 6 says, he is not here. For he has risen, just as he said. <clears throat> I want to assure you that Jesus Christ was not resuscitated. Every other person that Jesus brought back to life, Lazarus, uh, the, uh, Jairus' daughter, the widow named son, all those people uh, that were resuscitated back to life, guess what? They died. Either that or Lazarus is hiding somewhere in a cave in Tennessee somewhere that we can't find him. Folks, he's dead. He's dead. Yes, Jesus resuscitated him. He brought him back to life. But Lazarus, when Jesus came back to life, do you know, I'm going to tell you this. I don't know if you know, you probably know this. When you and I get to glory, we are going to see the same Jesus that the apostles saw. You see, when Jesus became human, he will forever, for all eternity, have that human aspect about him. You will see him as the apostles saw him. What they handled, you will handle. What they heard, you will hear. What they saw, you will see. You will see Jesus just the way they saw him. Number six, his ascension into heaven. Acts 1, 9 says, and after he had said these things, after Jesus said these things, <clears throat> he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. He was lifted up into glory. You know, I know that there are those illusionists who do these magical, you know, levitating stunts. This was no stunt. You know, uh, as the song says, what goes up must come down. Well, that's not true uh, for Jesus. He went up and he's seated at the right hand of God. He's in glory. And number seven. His present position. We read in Colossians 3 1, 
keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Would any of us be so arrogant? Would we be so supercilious to think that we, because of our moral, pious integrity, should have the right to sit at the right hand of God? Jesus sits there because he himself is God. Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, the Son of God whom we celebrate his coming into this world every December 25th. Christmas is about Jesus. Folks, if there is no Christ, there's no Christmas. It's just that simple. We can commercialize it all we want. And we can make as many movies about it as we want. But I'm telling you, if there's no Christ, there's no Christmas. We also find in our text that God the Father was a major, has a major part in the Christmas story also. It says not just about Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit working. It's the God working. But listen, it's about God. In Acts 2.23, here's what we read. This is Peter's sermon at, after, at Pentecost. He says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus came to this world as a decree of God, as a plan of God. Not God's plan B, as some believe, that plan A didn't work, so God had to come up with plan B because Israel was God's plan B and it didn't work out so well, so God says, I need a new plan, so he brought Jesus. No, 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 no. You know, folks, God don't need... God don't need no, excuse this terrible English, God does not need a plan B. He just needs his plan A. There is no plan B with God. Jesus in eternity past is God's plan for our redemption. And please note of the usage of the Father's activity in our text. We read from Matthew 1, you know, 26 through 35. But look at the Father's activity in the birth of Christ. In verse 26, the angel Gabriel is sent by whom? He's sent by God. In verse 28, Gabriel tells Mary, God is with you. He speaks of God's presence. In verse 30, it says, Mary has found favor with God. In verse 35, it says specifically, the holy child shall be called the son of God. God is involved in the birth of Christ. The Holy Spirit is involved in the birth of Christ. Jesus, the son, is involved in his own birth. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all active, all present, all participating in the birth of Jesus. I want to conclude this message uh, by your considering this thought about the Holy Spirit in relation to the birth of Jesus. This is very important. In, in, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, it gives a specific reason why Jesus came into this world. It says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Now, sometimes we don't, we don't link those two things together, the birth of Jesus and, and the destruction of Satan's power. But they're there. And we should not, we would be remiss not to mention that. 
that the birth was just not so that we could go to heaven, but so Jesus could accomplish the, the destruction of our great enemy. He's the destroyer of Satan's power. Jesus was born at a time when the people that God was to deliver were living in spiritual darkness and death. In Matthew, we find that in Matthew 4, 16. And this same verse, Matthew 4, 16, tells us in reference to, to uh, Jesus coming, it says, upon them, that is upon these people, a light has dawned. Now, I, I want to be specific here. It is not upon everybody in the whole wide world. Please understand this. Folks, everybody doesn't get to go to heaven. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ does not flow through everybody's heart. You do realize that, don't you? That God pursues those whom he is going to save. We don't pursue God. God pursues us. If we are fallen people, if our nature is so depraved and so dead in trespasses and sins, in what way, in what way do we possibly say that we pursued God? I will not tell you whom, but a politician on the news yesterday, boy, you know, if these, if these people ran on a spiritual ticket, they wouldn't get any votes. They shouldn't get any votes. But this one politician says that there's a spark of the divine in all of us. Where do they get this? The Bible says you and I are dead, D-E-D-D, -D, dead in our trespasses and sins. We ain't got no life. We're dead. Where is the spark of divine or deity in any of us there is none righteous the scripture says no no one we are like sheep have gone astray there is none who does good no not one all from Romans chapter 3 where is the spark of deity in us Upon them, upon the people of God, a light has dawned. You had come to Christ because God had, quote unquote, turned the light on in your heart when he regenerated you. You saw the value and the worth of his gospel. He turned a switch on in your heart. The light came on and you responded to it. That doesn't happen to everybody. Notice this. As Satan had come to do his deadly work, so too Jesus has come to do his Father's will. So here we have the Father's will. We have the Son's work. And we have the Holy Spirit's witness in our lives. The Father's will, the Son's work, 
and the Holy Spirit's witness in our lives. It is evident that as we look at all that is happening in our world today, that there is no doubt that Satan is out to steal and to kill and to destroy, just like Jesus says. That's what he wants to do. You know, people say, I don't know what's happening in our world. I'll tell you what's happening in our world. Satan's loose. He's out to steal and to kill and destroy. But the question that I would like to pose to you is this. How is Satan doing these evil things? What, what is his plan? How does he go about doing these evil things? Let me give you three areas in which he, as Peter says, is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And that's what he's doing. But let's just look at three things. And I'm quickly going to do this because it's time for us to close here in a moment. Three, three areas in which Satan seeks to devour people. Number one, morally. And when I say morally, I mean he, he entices us to sin. All of us. There is moral degradation in this world. If you don't believe that, look at the news today. Number two, physically. What he does for us is leads us to death. He leads us to death. A death that that person had never known Christ. Number three, morally, number one, two, two is physically, and three is intellectually. He seduces us to error. It's a seduction of our minds, our emotions. Our mind, will, and emotions are all under the influence of this evil. They're not dead, they're alive, but they're influenced by Satan. But then take note of how the Holy Spirit, this with Satan, I told you what Satan is doing, how he does it, morally, physically, and intellectually. But I want, I want you to note on how the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, works in those same three areas in the life of you, the believer. Works in the same ways. Morally, number one, morally, he makes us to be in Christ a new creation where sin has lost its power. How do we know that? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Behold, if anyone's in Christ, he's become a new creation, new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. There is a new moral sense about you. Dr. W.T. Connard, a former professor, is long gone now, but taught at Southwestern Seminary in, in Fort Worth, Texas, said that when you become a Christian, that you can no longer be mentally or morally what you used to be. There's got to be a moral change in your life. Number two, there's a physical thing that the Holy Spirit does. He leads us to live in full dependence upon Jesus Christ. You know that verse from Matthew 6, 33? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added to you. That's a physical thing. The physical thing is, as a Christian... As a Christian, and I've experienced this through 52 years of both as a minister and a married person. God has supplied for my wife and I physically over and over and over and over and over again. I did not enter into this field to make myself rich. 
I would not be doing this if I wanted to be rich. But by the grace of God, everything that we've ever needed, needed, not wanted, but needed, he has supplied. There's this physical protection that God gives. And number three, the Holy Spirit works intellectually. Satan works intellectually to seduce us to error. The Holy Spirit works in, uh, intellectually that in Christ, the Holy Spirit renews our minds in order that we day by day become more and more conformed to Christ's image. Romans 12, 2 and Romans 8, 29. You are being conformed day by day to be conformed to the image of Christ. So let's conclude by looking at Luke 1, 32 to 33. 32 to 33 says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Did you ever stop to consider what what verse 33 tells us at, at at its end? He says, and his kingdom will have no end. Friends, we only have a few days away before we come to Christmas. We have become so accustomed to baking and buying and wrapping and decorating that perhaps we've forgotten about the main thing. Perhaps we have forgotten about the place which we will serve and where we will live for eternity. There's only one of two places we'll end up. We will spend eternity either in heaven with a resurrected Christ, an ascended Christ, either we will spend it there in heaven in absolute joy and happiness and spiritual bliss, or we will spend eternity in hell. We'll be total separation from God, whether it be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is the Christmas season. The best gift ever given is God's gift of His Son. And the best gift ever received is His offer to you and I for salvation. My friends, do you know Jesus? Let's pray. The Lord, bless this, uh, bless this time that we have, Father, to respond to Your Word. Father, accomplish in us what you have purposed. Father, for none of us are big enough or bad enough to thwart your perfect decreed will. Lord, as we submit to you today, Father, Lord, we do so trusting you complete with our lives. I thank you, Father, for this time. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for its people. I thank you, Lord, that they've been so gracious to us. Now, bless, I pray, as we have this time of response. In Jesus' name, amen.